As we begin not only Parshas Vayikra, but Sefer Vayikra this week, we are of course aware that the dominant theme throughout the entire Sefer, of course, is the sacrificial service, the Avodos HaKarbonos. And uh, while many of us, for obvious and understandable reasons, uh, are not so enthusiastic about these Parshios, and it is certainly the part of uh, the Torah that is most alien and hardest for most of us to relate to. Uh, nevertheless, it is obvious that the Avodos HaKarbonos were a central part of Jewish life in the time of the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash, certainly occupy a huge part of halachic literature, both in terms of the Torah Shebechsav in Sefer Vayikra, as well as in Torah Shebaal Peh. And therefore, it behooves us uh, that we should try to understand as best as we can what is the purpose of Karbonos. Why do we bring them? Why would the Torah have any interest in us offering Karbonos? After all, you know, if Hashem is worthy of any type of worship, then he certainly does not need gifts, uh, animal or flower uh, kind of Karbonos, any type of gifts from mankind. So what is the purpose of this? How, If it's clearly not for Hashem, that seems obvious. So in what way is it beneficial uh, for mankind? And this is obviously a very, very legitimate uh, and important question. Uh, and interestingly, the Rambam, at least in a number of places in his Mishnah Torah, actually suggests that we simply do not know why Hashem wants Karbonos. It's something that is beyond human reason, the Ramam suggests. It's part of the larger category of mitzvahs known as chukim, where we simply don't understand. Uh, but they themselves serve an important role, whether it's Karbonos or other examples uh, of chukim. They serve an important role in our religious development and our religious worship of Hashem. And that is that we have certain mitzvahs that we observe and we halachos that we keep that we don't understand. And that in and of itself shows a certain degree of loyalty and fidelity to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that we're even willing to worship and serve Him in a way when we don't understand, out of love and loyalty to Him. In certain ways, it's the highest measure and demonstration of loyalty to do things even that we don't understand. So that is not the most satisfying intellectual explanation, but it certainly may be something that we just have to come to grips with, and there is a certain redemptive quality even when we don't understand things. Nevertheless, despite these comments of the Rambam, there are at least three other approaches that do suggest rational understandings of the Karbonos that are offered by Rishonim, classical commentaries, uh, that I'd like to share with you. The first, in fact, comes from the Rambam himself, interestingly enough, a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde, because in the Moran of Uchim, the Guide to the Perplexed, the Rambam actually does offer a rational suggestion. In fact, it's quite well known, very famous, and uh, as we shall see, uh, in the eyes of other commentaries, somewhat infamous. <laughs> but it's certainly well known, that's for sure, whether you agree with it or not. And that is that Rambam has a very famous, uh, you could say, historical explanation. And he explains that we have to understand the historical and social context in which the Jewish people were emerging at this time. They were coming from having been completely immersed in idolatrous and paganist, pagan cultures. And therefore, says the Rambam, it would have been completely impossible to make a complete and abrupt change and totally uh, drop and completely ignore and sever ties with any type of sacrificial service. So that was completely commonplace in the ancient world. And therefore, Hashem had to gradually uh, take us away from that. And therefore, He incorporated this tendency, which we already had, but elevated it away from Avodah and channeled it towards the worship of Hashem. Uh, this explanation actually uh, is quite fascinating, but what emerges from it is that the Karbonos are not necessarily something that would be ideally 
part of a Jewish religious life, but rather were a concession to human weakness and historical circumstances. Abar Benel, in his introduction to Vayikra, defends this approach of the Rambam, points out that there's a medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, which seems to already uh, suggest a similar idea, comparing the purpose of Karbonos uh, with a parable, with a mashal, of a prince who had gone, so to speak, off the derech, had become wicked, and was involved in drinking all sorts of uh, inappropriate or gross uh, things, and his father got upset. His father said, let him now only eat regularly at my table, and then on his own he will come to avoiding and abstaining from these bad things. Similarly, the Jewish people who have become addicted to the uh, bad things of the Avodazara, says Hashem, let them come and just worship at my table, let them bring karbonos, and on their own, eventually they will come away from Avodazara. So this is the first approach uh, rational approach suggested by the Rambam. Ramban, here in his commentary to Arparsha in Parak Aleph, Pasuk Tess, quotes the Rambam here in the Moronavuchim and completely rejects it, refers to it as divrei havai, worthless, meaningless. Uh, how could you possibly just say that a mitzvah in the Torah, not just one mitzvah, but a whole section of Vayikra, a whole part of the Jewish life, is a concession to human weakness, historically uh, based, contextualized. Ramban is not all happy with this. And rather, uh, he actually, in his own heart of hearts, the Ramban says, he thinks that there's really a Kabbalistic explanation, uh, but that's not one that I would really understand. But he offers his own rational understanding of Karbanos. And that is, he says that Karbanos are fundamentally a response to human sin. And human sin generally takes place across three different components of activity. Deed, uh, speech, and thought. Therefore, says the Ramban, Karbanos reflect and engage all three. When it comes to deed, there's an action that the owner of the Karban does puts his hands on the animal, smicha, before the carbon is slaughtered. Number two is dibor. The owner of the carbon has to confess, says vidui, confess the sins. And number three, thought, uh, that is something that has spurred uh, the human beings, the owner's thoughts by seeing the animal burning on the mizbeach, the blood being sprinkled there. Uh, and by obs- observing this, a person is forced to confront the reality of his mistakes and how truly he deserves that this were his fate. He deserves to be on the Mizbeach, as it were, but not for the kindness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who accepts this animal as a replacement for his sins, and this will induce tshuva. The Sefer HaChinuch has a slightly different approach, and he says in his famous theory of Achar Pulos Nimshachalavavos, we can't just abstractly try to do tshuva, we have to have concrete actions which will spur our thoughts. And therefore we select an animal, we bring it to the Beis HaMikdash, we have to participate in sacrifices, and we were reminded, says the Sefer HaChinuch, that the superiority of man over animal is our ability to reason. But when we fail to reason, when we fail to do the right thing, and instead we sin, we are no better than an animal. And by seeing the animal offered on the Mizbeach, we realize that without reason we have no value, and eventually we will be destroyed, just like the sacrifice. In this week's Parsha, among the many different karbonos that we learn about, we read about the karbon chatas, a sin offering that is brought by different people based on, in different situations of sin. The common denominator is, of course, it's a sin offering, it's a chatas, but the Torah describes different types of people, different types of sins, which necessitate different types of karbonos. An interesting theme which runs through almost all of them is that repeatedly, when the Torah describes bringing the sin offering and all the details, in the concluding pasuk of an individual section, the Torah repeats every time almost the exact same phrase. That after you've gone through the whole process of offering this particular carbon, ki kohen the service being done by the kohen will provide the owner of the animal atonement for his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. 
So it seems to make a lot of sense. After all, it is a sin offering. The reason we're doing this is to get forgiveness. And therefore, the Torah emphasizes that when you've gone through the process, you brought the right animal, you offer it in the right way on the Mizbeach and the Mesimigdash, Kipur Elif HaKohen, Mechataso, you're getting atonement from your sin. And this appears in a number of places, at least four different places in Paragdalad and Parakei. However, there's one exception to the rule which stands out. And that is a normal situation of a private individual who can afford to bring the appropriate carbon. When a person sins and is required to bring a chatos, so he is offered two possibilities. He can either bring a female sheep, a keves, or a female goat, a siras izim. When it comes to the female sheep, the very same phrase we've spoken about is mentioned. However, in Paragdalad Pasaglamadalaf, this is the only exception in the whole parak when it describes bringing the she goat for the carbon as a form of a sin offering. The Torah tells us, The person will get atonement. That is true. That is mentioned even in this case. But this is the only case where the word mechataso is omitted. It doesn't say he'll get atonement for his sin. Now, maybe you'll say it's implied. But if it's implied, then how come in all the other examples in the parak, it's explicit? And if it's explicit in all the other places, why is this the only place that it's not mentioned explicitly? It seems to be a subtle nuance in the text, but one that is definitely perplexing and therefore needs to be understood. So the Nitziv, in his commentary, Ha'amek Dover here, and I saw in Rabbi Simon's Sefer Imre Baruch, he quotes the same idea from the Maharil Diskin. They both explain this discrepancy in the text based on a very beautiful and powerful Gemara in Masech the Sota on Daf Lamed Beis, where the Gemara says that the reason, something we take for granted, but originally the reason why Shmon Esra is recited by each of us quietly, why is it a tefillah balachash, why is tefillah done quietly, so as not to embarrass a person who sinned. After all, if you're already talking to God in Shmon Esra, many people will want to avail themselves of that opportunity to confess any sin that they may have transgressed. However, if Shimon Esri had been done out loud, then if we confessed, everyone else in Shul would hear it. We'd be embarrassed. Therefore, it says the Gemara, Chazal established that Shimon Esri should be said quietly, so as not to embarrass anyone who's choosing this as an opportunity, using this as an opportunity to confess his or her sins. Says the Gemara, and how did Chazal know this? Where do we get the sensitivity for this, to make this decision, to make the tefillah in a way that doesn't embarrass the sinner? Says the Gemara, we learned it from the Karbanos, including the ones mentioned in our Parsha. After all, we just said we're talking about the Chatas. But another carbon, the carbon Ola, has nothing to do with sinning. And yet, says the Gemara, both the Chatas, the sin offering, and the Ola are both slaughtered, they're both shechted, in the same part of the Beis HaMikdash, in the northern part of the Azara. Why? Says the Gemara, so as not to embarrass someone who's coming to bring a sin offering. If there was a special location that was only for the slaughtering of sin offerings, a karbanas for sin, then anyone who saw you there would know that you sinned and you'd be embarrassed. However, now by putting the chatas and the ola in the same location, there's no way to distinguish who's coming to bring an ola, who's bringing the kamachatas, and therefore no one has to be embarrassed when they come to bring that karban. Beautiful, says the Gemara. Not so fast. After all, we sprinkle the blood of a chatas and the blood of an ola in different ways. So isn't that a distinguishing factor, a distinguishing feature which will embarrass the owner of the Chatas, says the Gemara, no, because only the Kohen sees what's happening when he sprinkles the blood, only he knows which blood is for which animal, for which person, therefore no one will be the wiser, no one will be embarrassed. Okay, says the Gemara, but still not enough. After all, as we said previously, the Chatas is a female animal, and the Ola has to be a male, so that'll distinguish it, and the person who sees the female animal will know, ah, 
You see, you're bringing a female, it must be that you had, had to bring a chatos, you sinned. Says Gemara, no, because the tail will cover the female organ, therefore no outside observer will notice who's a male, who's a female animal. Says Gemara, still not good enough, because that's only true for a keves, the female sheep, which you can bring, has a tail, it'll cover the female organ. But the female goat, the the female goat, the, uh, <clears throat> we're, we're talking about the Sirius Yizim, does not have a tail, and therefore there's nothing to cover, nothing to prevent the embarrassment. So here says the Gemara in conclusion, in that case you're right. If a person brings the female goat for the sin offering, people will be able to notice that it's female, and they'll know they're bringing a sin offering, but there's nothing we could do about that. Because in that case, the person, by choosing to bring this particular animal, the female goat, you have chosen to bring embarrassment upon yourself. If you didn't want to be embarrassed, you should have brought a female sheep, which would have had a tail and would have covered and covered up the female organ, and therefore you wouldn't have been embarrassed. But you choosing to bring the goat, okay, so then you're, it's true, people might notice it, but that's not the Torah's fault, that was your decision. That's the Gemara. Beautiful, fascinating Gemara. Says the Nitziv, why would a person bring a female goat? After all, he could have avoided the embarrassment. Says the Nitziv, you're right. Presumably the person who did it is bringing it on purpose. They're doing it on purpose because they want to enhance the shame that they feel. They want to suffer the shame of people noticing that they are bringing the carbon chatas. Why? Because as the Gemara Brocho says, If you sin and feel shame and embarrassment over your sin, you are forgiven. In Western and modern culture that we live in, shame is almost a dirty word. However, from the Torah's perspective, in proper balance and at the right time, shame is actually an incredibly healthy and spiritually edifying uh, and redemptive quality because it shows a person's feelings of genuine guilt uh, over what they did and it's a moral compass to get back on track. Says the Gemara, in this case, a person uh, is embarrassed, they get forgiveness. So says the Nitziv, a person brings the she-goat, the Siras Izim, they're doing it on purpose so that they should be shamed. Therefore, before the animal's even slaughtered by the fact that they brought that animal, they already felt embarrassed, they were already forgiven. And therefore, that's why the Apostle does not say Mechataso, because he doesn't need to be forgiven for his sin. He was already forgiven with the shame that he felt by bringing that animal. Chazal in the Medrash, on the opening Pasuk of our Parsha, the opening Pasuk of Vayikra, Parsha Vayikra, Savior Vayikra, note that there is a subtle nuance in the language, which in fact can be understood on a deeper level as alluding to not only what makes Moshe Rabbeinu special, but what makes all Jewish prophets special, and therefore by extension, the Jewish people's relationship with Hashem quite special. As the Apostle tells us, Vayikra el Moshe, avayedaber Hashem, elav me'ohel mo'ed lemor. The Mishkan has now been constructed we now have an Ohel Moed attentive meeting, and Moshe, excuse me, and Hashem calls out to Moshe to tell him the following, and then of course, colon, this introduces the continuation of our Parsha and the delineation of the Halachos, which will be contained therein. The rabbis of the Medrash Chazal are sensitive to the fact that there seems to be an unnecessary uh, redundancy in a se- of sense. Why does the Pasuk say, Vayikra el Moshe, Hashem called to Moshe, and he spoke to him. If he called to him, he's speaking to him. If he's speaking to him, he called to him. We don't necess- we don't need both, and we certainly don't typically find both such terms. Uh, using this sensitive to the nuance in the language, the Medrash here in Vayikra Rabbah in Parsha Aleph Simon Yudbet has a in Yudbet in Yudgimel, excuse me, uh, has a very very lengthy exposition using this as an opportunity 
to highlight, as I mentioned, what makes Moshe, Jewish Nevi'im, and therefore the Jewish people, unique and special. A much more shortened version of this is abbreviated and summarized, as I say, in a brief comment by Rashi. But in the full uh, extension of the Medrash here, I believe, if I counted correctly, the Medrash makes seven points, some of which are slightly different, others of which are really different ways of saying the same thing, but all coming to this particular theme. And we get the theme right at the outset of the Medrash, which tells us, Amr Rabbi Yitzchak, Ad Shluhu Kam HaMishkan, Haisa Nevua Metsuya Bumos Olam. Shluhu Kam HaMishkan, Nistalka Beinehem. The Medrash asserts something quite remarkable, that until the Mishkan was established, which of course took place at the end of Sefer Shmos, right before our Parsha begins, there were common, it was common to have Hashem speak to, in different contexts, non-Jews. There were many non-Jewish Nevi'im. However, once the Mishkan is established, that has created a new reality of a special relationship that is now in a more permanent and intimate setting between Hashem and the Jewish people. Hashem has now chosen to make his home, so to speak, with the Jewish people. And as a result, says the Medrash, that level of uh, intimacy which Hashem used to have, even with many non-Jews, is no longer going to be apparent. The Medrash itself points out there seems to be an ex- a contradiction to this. After all, uh, well after the Mishkan has been established, we will read about the non-Jewish Navi Bilam. So the, Gemar- the Medrash says, well, that doesn't disprove this, because Bilam was only given Nevuah so that he could praise the Jewish people, as we see in Parshas Balak, where while he tries to curse us, but in the end, what comes out is Matovu Allah Yaakov, he praises the Jewish people. So that's why that was allowed to be an exception. But overall, says the Medrash, this, the end of last week's Parsha, the end of Sefer Shmos, the beginning of our Parsha, marks a new period of, of history in which the Jewish people's relationship with Hashem is now more exclusive and more intimate than it had been previously. So using that theme, the Medrash goes on to give numerous examples to further illustrate the point. For example, in the next paragraph, the Medrash makes a very well-known point, uh, which is, again, paraphrased by Rashi, that contrasts the Vayikra, the full spelling of that word, Vav Yud Kuf Resh Aleph, Vayikra, Hashem El Moshe, that Hashem called, excuse me, Vayikra El Moshe, that Hashem called out to Moshe, as opposed to later when it comes to uh, Bilam, where we read Vayikar Elohim Es Bilam, without the letter Aleph. And that is actually more properly translated as Hashem happened upon Bilam. And that difference, just one letter, the Aleph, makes all the difference, says the Medrash. After all, when it comes to the non-Jews, Hashem is only revealed to them in what the Medrash initially refers to as a Chatzi Dibor. Not even a full sentence, not even a complete word, just a partial word. As opposed to when it comes to the Jewish people there, Hashem appears to Moshe Vayikra the Aleph, the full world, S. Moshe. The second opinion there in the Medrash says, well, that's not really such a big deal, a full world or a partial word, but on a more deeper level, says the next opinion in the Medrash, Nivyei Yisra Beloshen Kedusha, Beloshen Tahara, Beloshen Barur, Beloshen Shemalachia Sharis, Makal Sambo, Lakarish Barchul. This name, Yikra, is not just a full word, but it is a pure word, a holy word, it's the source of blessing. As the Pesach tells us in Navi Yeshaya that the angels praise Hashem and say, V'kara ze'el zev amar. That's a word that's used in association with the angels praising Hashem. As opposed to Vayikar, says the Medrash, that harkens back, that hints at a Pesach that is referred to in Tavar Parak Gimel, which refers to somebody having a source of tumma of impurity at night, 
And you see here, says the Medrash, that Vayikar versus Vayikra highlights the Jewish people's elevated status. And while obviously the Mishnah presents this, the Medrash presents this as a slight debate, is Vayikra versus Vayikar the idea of a full word versus a partial word? Or is it the holy word versus the more impure word? But I think it's almost a distinction without a difference. I think both opinions really are agreeing on the fundamental point that this new stage of history, now that the Mishkan has been created, Hashem is referring to Moshe as a Vayikra, that's the holy word, that's the full word. Again, it, whichever interpretation you take, it's alluding to this more uh, permanent and intimate relationship that Hashem has now with the Jewish people. This is continued with three or four other interpretations in the Medrash, but again, I think each one slightly different perhaps, but all basically uh, with the same idea. The next opinion in the Medrash says, well, when it comes to non-Jews, even though when they have nevuah, it's ka'adam shabam erachok. It's like somebody who's visiting, as opposed to in the Jewish people like Moshe, they have a more permanent, intimate relationship with Hashem. Uh, or they're at night, versus when people aren't really around, it's much more happenstance, versus the Jewish people are during the day. Uh, or the Medrash says, when the non-Jews get even prophecy, there's kind of like a division, there's kind of a separation or distance even then, as opposed to the Jewish people, it's more intimate, etc., uh, etc. Et and all of these, again, different interpretations, I think are all making the point the Medrash is elaborating on and embellishing in the Pesach of our Parsha, that we are in a new stage of history where the Jewish people, through Moshe, have a special relationship with Hashem. One of the interesting halachos which emerges from the psukim in Parshas Vayikra is that in many circumstances <clears throat> there can be a need for atonement, for kapara, even for a sin that was done accidentally, even for an Avera B'Shogeg. And the question that can be asked, and in fact is asked by this Svasemes, is why that is so. After all, if you think about it logically, says the Svasemes, there was no rebellious intent if the person merely sinned by accident. There was no ill will. There was nothing particularly uh, evil or wicked about it. A person made a mistake. A person uh, did an accident, had an accident. We all do. None of us are perfect. Why should a person need serious atonement, bring a carbon? Why should that be necessary? In order to answer this question, the Sfasemes uh, shares a medrash that comments on a pasuk uh, towards the end of our parsha in Parakei, Pasuk Aleph, which is discussing uh, a slightly different context. And that is the Pasuk about a person who knows testimony about somebody else and refuses to testify. And the litigant who wants this person to testify on his behalf calls him to testify. The, the witness, potential witness, denies that he knows anything. The Torah says that the litigant has a right to make the witness take a shvua, take an oath, that he doesn't know anything. If the person actually does that, he takes the oath, but in fact, in truth, he really was a witness. He had seen or he knew information that was relevant to the case. Says the avono. So then he will have to bear his iniquity. That is a terrible sin. And there is a particular carbon that the Pesukim here describe that in such a case, the carbon, the witness, the sacrifice, the offering that will have to be brought by someone who really did know could have been a witness, but denied it, and then ends up getting caught, and therefore it needs atonement for not doing his, what we might call civic duty, of testifying in a case where he did no, te- he did no testimony that could have helped somebody, and of course he made it much worse uh, by, in fact, taking an oath that he didn't know when, in fact, he really did. Commenting on that pasuk, a medrash in Vayukar connects this to a much broader theme. 
on the words here in the Pasuk of Hu'eid, says the Medrash, that's referring to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are witnesses. We witness for Hashem. O Ra'ah, what does that mean? We saw, we saw the truth at Sinai. O Yada, as the Pasuk continued, we know the truth. So we are absolutely a genuine, serious witnesses. We should bear witness for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for the truth of monotheism and the existence of God. However, as the Pasuk continues, but what happens if Im lo yagid v'nasa avono? Says the Medrash, if we do not share that testimony with the nations of the world, even the Gentiles, even the broader public, if we don't do that, says the Medrash, Im lo tagidu Says the Medrash, God says to us, if you don't share this truth that you are a witness to, that you have seen, that you know, you don't share that with the nations of the world, with the people of the world, you don't share that as a universal truth, Hashem says, then I will repay you in kind, I will punish you severely. That is the comment of the Medrash here on this Pasuk, a Pasuk which seems to be very important and interesting Pasuk, but it's very, very narrow and limited in scope, talking about a specific instance of a, a witness who denies knowing testimony and even swears. The Medrash, in a very beautiful way, deepens and broadens it to describe the Jewish people who are witnesses, and if we deny our mission and our truth, our testimony, and don't share that, we are also held culpable and will be accountable. Says the, the Sfas Emes, with this in mind, what you see from this Medrash is that our essence as a nation, is to testify, testify to the reality of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, through our elevated spiritual level and our moral lifestyle. I don't think we're necessarily denying that maybe we should be somewhat uh, evangelical, if you will, or you know, uh, sharing this in a very active way, but that's not necessarily what the Pasuk or the Medrash necessarily requires. It's just living our life the way it's supposed to be lived, that itself is a form of testimony that shows people that you work with, that you live near, that you interact with in all sorts of forms of life. Wow, that's what it means to be a Jew. That's what it means to be a religious Jew. Wow, that's something special. They have the truth there. That type of testimony, that's the essence of who we are. However, says the Sfas if we sin, even in general, if we sin, we know what's the halacha in Eidus, a person who sins, who becomes a Russia, is wicked, disqualifies himself from being an eligible aid, an eligible witness. If we sin, we disqualify ourselves as witnesses as Fasemis. If we diminish our credibility, then even if we do many other mitzvahs in our life, but on a deep and very fundamental level, we are totally besmirching and ruining the entire purpose and mission of our lives. If the mission of our lives are to be a witness for Hashem, if we disqualify ourselves and make us puzzle, ineligible to be a witness, then for all the other mitzvahs that we may do, but we've really lost the purpose of our lives. The Sfasemes quotes a comment of the Orachayim on our Parsha that specifically relates to the question we started with. What is the problem with an accidental sin, a sin b'shogeg? And the Orachayim says very specifically, it's true, of course, that maybe on the level of intent, it's not so bad. But says the Orachayim, the soul, the very essence of a person, the neshama, is diminished even by accidental sins. And therefore, to rehabilitate and heal that aspect of our neshama, we bring a korban, which is intended to, in his words, l'karev ha-nefesh l'shorasha. We have to return, we have to come close, karban milashon karov, we have to come close, we have to resume, we have to bring our soul back to the way it was intended, where it was originally, before we sinned. So on the level of effect, even an accidental sin besmirches our soul, in some way, therefore disqualifying us as being an ideal and even potentially suitable witness to the truth of Hashem. Says the Sfasemis, now we understand the problem with a sin b'shogeg. It's true from the perspective of intent and sinfulness of the action itself. Accidental is not so bad, perhaps. But it still negates and disqualifies our ability to fulfill life's mission 
as a witness to Hashem. That is a terrible, terrible sin. Sasemis continues and he points out that in our Pasuk it says the word avono, avon, he says is usually a lashon of mezid, of deliberate sin. Says the Sfasemis and hachanami. We can use that Pasuk in this context because the action itself may have been accidental. But once you've done that accidental sin and now disqualified yourself as a suitable test, a witness for Hashem, by not doing tshuva and rehabilitating yourself, you are mazed on that higher and larger purpose of life. And therefore, nasa avono, you deserve to be severely punished if you don't take care of that. Hence, the importance of shogeg, getting to the essence of who we are as Jewish people. One of the halachos that we learn about towards the beginning of our parsha is that of smicha. In certain circumstances, the owner of a karbon, before that animal is slaughtered and offered on the mizbeach, the owner rests his hands, smicha rests his hands on the animal. The medrash in the Torah's Quranim here darshins that, in fact, men who bring a karbon could be obligated in smicha. But even when a woman brings the exact same karbon, women uh, are, by exer hakatuv, are not obligated uh, in smicha. However, the Medrash uh, continues here in the Torah's Quranim with a very fascinating machlokas tanaim. A woman might not be obligated to do the smicha to rest her hands on the karban, but would she be permitted to do so? And this leads to a famous debate. One opinion says, Nashim samchos rishos. A woman may not be obligated, but rishos, she has permission. If she wants, she may do so. It's her option. It's her choice. Another opinion says, no, if you're not obligated, you're also not permitted. Now, while at first glance this might seem to be a somewhat esoteric, uh, far-removed, distant machlokis from our uh, more everyday life at the moment, uh, in fact, the Mishnah and the Gemara Masech Rosh Hashanah uh, show that this debate actually is a paradigm which has very far-reaching ramifications. The Mishnah and Gemara there discuss whether a woman on Yontif is allowed to blow shofar or not. A woman's not obligated in shofar. Let's say she wants to. Can she blow shofar on Yontif? Maybe there's alternatively a a muksa problem or something like that. Anyway, the the Gemara there in the Mishnah uh, show and demonstrate that there's a machlokas. One opinion says a woman can, and one other woman says a woman cannot. And in explaining that machlokas, the Gemara says it goes back to the debate from the Medrash on our Parsha, that the origin of everything, of the debate about Shofar, goes back to Smicha on the Karban. The same opinion that says, Nashim Somchos Roshos, that women can rest their hands on the Karban, also holds that women can blow the Shofar on her own if she wants. And the other opinion says she cannot rest her hands on the Karban, also says she cannot blow the Shofar. In other words, what we see here is that the debate about Smicha is really a paradigm for the broader issue of are women permitted to do mitzvot that they are not obligated in? Are they allowed to volunteer and optionally choose to perform those mitzvot? So one opinion says yes, the other opinion says no. And the question, which I think is really fascinating, somewhat philosophically, but also conceptually and halachically, is we paskin, we paskin that nashim som chos that with very, very few exceptions, most of the time, even in a mitzvah that a woman is not obligated in, she may optionally volunteer to perform that mitzvah. The question is, given that is the case, when a woman does perform such a mitzvah, what is the status of that action? Is it a full-fledged mitzvah? Just that she wasn't obligated to do it, but if she does it, it's a full-fledged mitzvah, no different than if a man does it, or if she herself had been obligated? 
Or do we say that no, it's something much, much less. It's not negative, but it's you know more spiritually neutral. It's not a real mitzvah. It's more of just you know almost acting, if you will, in a very benign way. So on one level, we have to acknowledge, again, this has nothing to do with women versus men, it's true for anybody, that the Gemara very famously says in Kiddushin that there's more reward for a mitzvah you're obligated in than if you volunteer. This is somewhat counterintuitive, but most of the the classical explanation of this, and I think it's, uh, we, if we think about it more deeply, I think we know this to be true, is that when we're obligated in anything, mitzvah or otherwise, the obligation to do anything naturally creates a certain resistance to it. So by overcoming that resistance and fulfilling our obligation, we deserve a greater reward than if we volunteer for something, because when we're not obligated and we're merely volunteering, it's, it's certainly virtuous to volunteer, but there is no resistance that has to be overcome in the same way, and therefore it's deserving of less reward. Whatever the rationale is, it's a fact that Gemara says, in general, men or women, anybody, when you volunteer for a mitzvah, you don't get as much reward. So one question is clear, one, one point is clear, I should say, that a woman who is volunteering for a mitzvah, since we paskin that women are allowed to, it's not the same level of reward as if she had been obligated. But still, that doesn't necessarily fully answer the conceptual question of what is the status of that action when a woman does the mitzvah that she's not obligated in. Is it really the same act as if she had been as anyone else doing the mitzvah? Or perhaps qualitatively, categorically, it's something less. To answer this question, we need to go back to the world of the korban. There's a very interesting machloket. Even if we assume, as we do halachically, that a woman is allowed to volunteer, what type of smicha does she do? When a man does smicha, he fully rests with all of his weight, all of his power, he rests on the animal. He's not just gently touching it, he's fully putting his weight on the animal as he rests his hands on the animal. The question is whether a woman, when we allow her to do smicha, can she do that as well? And this is a machlokas in the Rishonim. The Ravid says, yes, nashim can be somech b'chol kochan, just like a man. But there's another opinion in Rishonim from Tosvos that says, no, even when we allow women to do smicha, it just means gently resting her hands on the animal. What is this debate uh, dependent on? Why should there be such an argument? So Rav Gustman, one of the great uh, early and mid-20th century gedolim, first from Europe and then eventually America, and then eventually after that, Yerushalayim, Irakodesh, he explains in his Sefer, Kuntrasi Shiurim, that the debate hinges on the question that we mentioned. According to the Ravid, a woman is not obligated to do smicha, but if she chooses to do so, the action that she does has the full-fledged status of a mitzvah. Therefore, she can do smicha no different than a man who is obligated. The only difference is that she's not obligated, but when she volunteers, her status of a mitzvah is no different. As opposed to the other opinion of Tosfos says, no, even when a woman is volunteering, and it's fine that she does, but it's not a full-fledged mitzvah. And therefore, we're not going to allow her to fully rest her hands on the karbon, because ordinarily, a karbon is kadosh. It's already been sanctified and dedicated to the base of Mikdash. Random people can't just touch a karbon. That actually has strict halachos. So we'll allow her to touch it gently, but since it's not a real mitzvah, we won't allow her to touch it and rest her full weight on it. In other words, this machloket, which again seems to be far removed, it has to do with just the resting of the hands on the karbon, but it's really hinging on this fundamental question. According to the Ravid, it's a full-fledged mitzvah, no different than a man, just that she wasn't obligated to do so. As opposed to the tosfos, it really is something less. Another practical question, which may very well depend on this question, Rav Gusman suggests as well, is the machlokas, when a woman volunteers for a mitzvah, can she make a bracha? A woman shakes lolov, a woman does shofar blowing. Could she blow, can she make a bracha? Or because she wasn't obligated to do so, she doesn't have to make a bracha. This is a well-known machlokat rishonim, and Rav Gusman suggests that maybe this is the same issue as well. If you hold this a full-fledged mitzvah, then maybe she can make a bracha. But if you hold this something less than that, then of course you wouldn't let her make a bracha on something that was less than a full mitzvah.
The opening chapters of Sefer Vayikra, as we know, deal primarily with the Karbanos. And interestingly, there seems to be at first glance an inconsistency in the second chapter in Perak Bet, when it discusses two different halachos that govern the Karban Mincha, the meal or flower offerings. On the one hand, we are told in Pasuk Yeralef that Kol Mincha Hashem Lotasa Chametz, or Seor. You can't have any Chametz or any leaven as part of the Mincha carbon. Furthermore, you can't have any honey as part of it, as part of your sacrifice to Hashem. So here, this clearly implies that the carbon's basic ingredients of flour and oil must remain free of anything extra. And yet, just two psukim later, in Pasuk Yigimel we read, You absolutely should and must include salt. In fact, the Pasuk continues and further commands that many other sacrifices also must include salt. Al-Kol, excuse me, Karban Cha, Takriv Melach. Question is twofold. Why may we not add leaven or honey to the Karban? And if we are commanded not to add ingredients, why must we add salt? A number of the different Mepharshim, uh, classical in particular, offer symbolic explanations for the problem with the leaven or with the honey, most of those explanations don't address the positive contribution of the salt. Rav Mordechai Gifter, the great Rosh Hashiva of Tells in Cleveland, in his Sefer Perkei Torah, on the other hand, offers a beautiful and unified explanation to both halachos. The problem with honey and leaven, with dvash and chametz, he says, is that they are additives. They improve the taste or consistency of the food by changing it. The external nature of the change they induce is the source, says Rav Gifter, of their isr, of their prohibition. Salt, on the other hand, is a preservative. It enhances and preserves the natural flavor of the food, and this is the reason why we add it to the carbonos. Rav Gifter goes on to explain that these twin halachos are not merely what rules that govern the ingredients that can or cannot be added to a carbon, but more profoundly, they actually serve as a model for spiritual expression and aspiration and should guide our voted Hashem. What we're being taught is, symbolically, that our Avodah Hashem, our service of Hashem, our religiosity, our spirituality, shouldn't be artificial mimicry of others, like an artificial additive like the honey or the sa'or or the chametz. Rather, it should be a natural expression of our true selves. As the Gemara itself says in the context of Karbonos, Echad Hamarba, Echad Hamamit, Ubilvaj Yechavin Libo Lashem Shamayim. It's not always about how much you do, or even specifically what you do, but Yechavin Libo Lashem Shamayim. You have to be sincere, you have to be authentic. Sometimes when we see somebody who's doing more or something different than us, we try to copy or ape that behavior. Says the Gemara, no. That's not so important. What's more important is, be sincere. Don't introduce additives, honey, chametz. Rather, be sincere. In order for our relationship with Hashem to be meaningful, it must, like all relationships, be authentic, be genuine. The desire to grow and to improve is a necessary part of our Vodas Hashem. The growth has to be authentic, not artificial. 
Obviously, there is much about a halachic lifestyle to be a religious Jew, which is objective. It's non-negotiable. No one's perfect. We all fall short at times. But that doesn't, of course, change the binding nature of our obligation. But there is another large component of our religious life, which is more subjective and could fairly be described as more gray than black and white. For example, there could be issues, many, in which there's a multiplicity of legitimate opinions. And as a result, some people or some communities may follow one opinion, and others follow an alternate approach. There are also many practices that aren't necessarily mandated by strict halacha, but are nevertheless hugim or just good practices. How do you decide which one of those practices to adopt? If there's a genuine machlokes in halacha, how do you decide who to follow? Perhaps, I think, it is specifically in these all-important gray areas that it's crucial that we learn the lesson of the mincha as understood by Rav Gifter. Change that emerge from a genuine desire to improve, like the salt, taking what is authentically there, the true taste of the food, and enhancing it, preserving it, that reflects a genuine and authentic desire to improve our relationship with Hashem. Those are wonderful changes. Those are admirable ways of growing. Just like adding salt to the carbon, such actions which preserve or even enhance the natural flavor of a person's avodah Hashem are unquestionably positive. This, of course, has to be contrasted with doing something primarily because that's what other people are doing, or it'll make me look good. Those type of behaviors, and there are many others we could add to the list, are essentially the equivalent of adding honey to the carbon. Perhaps, initially, it improves the taste, but ultimately, it's artificial. And when it comes to the matters of the soul of Inyone Ruchnius, artificiality simply has no place. It's sad when we have people who are motivated by less than sincere uh, you know, motivations and or are just looking to copy other people. Sad when that lack of individuality, that lack of true sense of self affects any part of our life. But it's particularly tragic when it becomes the dominant motif in our relationship with Hashem. On the contrary, the challenge of life is to improve genuinely from the inside out who we are. And the lesson, therefore, that Rav Gifter teaches us about the Karbonos is really a profound, I would say, a north star for all of our religious life and observance. When it comes to Avodah Hashem, there is no single recipe, and salt is always sweeter than honey.